Man, you can be seated. Uh, this is uh, the last Sunday of this uh, series on the grace-centered family, and uh, today we're going to look at the idea of grace-centered church family, uh, that we use that language ar- around here a lot, and I just kind of want to uh, give you a couple steps uh, into the future of kind of what we're, we're doing over the next little bit. Next Sunday, we're going to start a new series called This is the Faith, and it is a series that came out of a tweet that was sent to me uh, by Tim Keller. He's a theologian and pastor, and he wrote this kind of long tweet about this series of things that makes Christianity unique. Like, what is it about our faith that is kind of unique? What does Christianity do? And um, when I read it, I was like, oh, that would make a a really great series. And so we're going to kind of work through a couple of those things and uh, just talk about what makes our, our faith and look different and what makes it unique from the rest of our culture and even all the different uh, world religions. And we have a companion Sunday school class with that that's going to start June 5th. So the week after we start the series, it'll be June 5th. And that series is going to be more uh, being able to uh, defend and articulate your faith to people that, that if you ever uh, kind of thought about, man, I'd like to have answers for people when they ask questions, or I'd like to just be able to articulate what my faith is, this class is going to help you to do that. And so that's going to be during the Sunday school hour uh, starting June 5th, and it will work nicely um, with the series that we're going to do, because my series that I'm preaching is not exactly that, but it, it will marry nicely with that Sunday school class. So uh, that's what we're going to be in uh, for a good chunk of the summer. Uh, and uh, looking forward to kind of studying that with you. Let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll get into today's message, right? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And uh, just like we pray uh, for our nuclear families, that, uh, th- that we would be grace-centered families, because there are no perfect families, uh, I pray that we as a church, that when people spend time with us and visit here, uh, that they would see us as a grace-centered family Uh, as well, that they would see our church that way. Um, It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. The controversy started uh, easy enough with a church sign put on by a Catholic church. And here on the screen for you, this is what the church sign said. Very simple, all dogs go to heaven. Uh, And uh, you would think that was a pretty innocuous enough uh, church sign. But across the street from this Catholic church, there was a Presbyterian church, and they decided to respond with this. Only humans go to heaven, read the Bible. (laughs) So the Catholic Church felt like they needed to respond, and so they put on their sign the next week, God loves all of his creation, dogs included. (laughs) Presbyterian Church felt they needed to respond, dogs don't have souls, this is not open for debate. (laughs) Catholic Church felt like they needed to respond, Catholic dogs go to heaven... Presbyterian dogs can talk to their pastor. Presbyterian church felt like they needed to respond. Converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. Catholic church felt they needed to respond. Free dog souls with conversion. Presbyterian church felt like they needed to respond. Dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. Catholic Church, take one last shot in the dark here. All rocks go to heaven. <laughs> right? Now, <laughs> it cracks me up every time. I, I, see, I see that every now and then. But 
uh, th that's funny, but the truth is that uh, many, many people, probably in this room even, many, many people have been hurt uh, through church conflict or church difficulty. I've, I've shared with you, that's kind of part of my journey gr growing up, is our church had a ton of conflict, uh, a ton of difficulty, and it's something I feel really, really passionate about. And honestly, uh, church conflict, if you think about it, it really is kind of inevitable. Uh, because we, as we've been talking about in this series, the Bible says that all, not some, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so churches are made up of people, and people are sinful, and people uh, get off track, and conflict happens. And so there are no perfect churches. We're not a perfect church. I don't even know that perfect should exactly be the goal, uh, like we've been talking about in this series. I think grace-centered should be the goal. Because if you're going to have a church full of people, and you're going to have a church full of opinions, and you're going to have a church full of sinners, and you're going to have all that, we are desperately going to need God's grace among us. And I believe that churches that will thrive, we'll get to this again at the end of the message, churches that are going to thrive over the next little bit are grace-centered churches. It's just so important that we understand and have grace for, for one another. So what I want to do today, when I was kind of going over this this morning, I kind of get a feel, and I'm like, man... I think this is going to feel a little bit more like a class than a sermon, but, but I think that's okay. Because what I want to do is I want to walk you through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. is one of the uh, churches in the New Testament that probably had more conflict than almost any other church, I would say. Uh, when Paul uh, wrote uh, 1 Corinthians to them, he was clearly pretty irritated with them. Uh, for all of the conflict that they were having. It was distracting them from their mission. Uh, it was causing lots of people to leave the church and also um, the, the faith. And so there's just a lot of issues uh, that this church faced in, in terms of conflict. And what I want to do with our time together this morning is I want to show you these conflicts, and then I want to show you a grace-centered response to each of these conflicts uh, that, that also come right from the scriptures so that we can kind of see that grace is not going to solve like some of our family's issues or some of our church's issues or some of our work issues. Grace isn't going to solve some of them. Grace is going to solve all of them, right? If we can become grace-centered, there is no conflict there is no obstacle, there is no difficulty that our families cannot overcome, that our church cannot overcome, and that we cannot overcome personally. It is that important. Grace is that important. So the first issue kind of facing this church is what I would call the church leader controversy. And he get, Paul gets right into it uh, in, in, in verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. All right, so Paul's making this appeal for unity. And he says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. And so what was happening in this, in this Corinthian church is that people were kind of staking their claim on their favorite teacher, their favorite preacher, their favorite kind of thought leader, if you will, that I like Apollos' perspective, well, I like Paul's perspective, I like Peter's perspective, and this still happens sometimes with the mainstream kind of availability of teachers and pastors and, and leaders. This still happens quite a bit because there's, we have so much access to the, the, the best teaching and the best preaching all, all over the country. And I saw this in particular uh, happen a lot during the pandemic. 
over, over the last two years um, that, because we're, we were exposed to so much teaching and preaching that our instinct was to plant our flag with one particular teacher. This is the person I love to follow. That, that you, know, you would hear things like, man, did you see what so-and-so said about race? Did you see what so-and-so said about mask mandates? Did you see what so-and-so said about vaccines? And, and all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're kind of staking our claim with what one leader and one preacher, one pastor, one leader, whatever, whatever the case may be, what they happen to say on the issue. Say, well, I like what he said, or I like what she said, or I like what that, you know, and all of a sudden it became that, that, that sort of thing. So I actually kind of ran into this unintentionally, even in my own ministry, um, that, that some of you know um, that I write a blog a- around here. Um, I literally have dozens of followers. Um, <laughs> I'm very proud of it. You know, usually, almost, almost everything. I, I do it kind of more as a hobby, that when I'm trying to process something, when I'm trying to think through something, the blog helps me to do it. And mainly, I have you guys in mind as I'm writing. Um, so uh, partway through the pandemic, um, I was trying to get my mind around answering some questions that people had about our pandemic response. And in particular, at the time, we weren't really meeting. And I was like, you know, what do I believe about this? What do I think about it? So I wrote a blog in May of 2020 uh, entitled, Should Churches Submit to the Governor's Order Not to Meet? Not provocative at all, right? (laughs) I was trying to work through my own feelings on this and my own leadership, and I wrote it mainly for you guys. So you could kind of see a little window into what I was thinking on this issue. And it was so May 2020. This was very new in the pandemic. Um, very, everybody was trying to figure it out. And so I wrote, I wrote this article for the blog. One of my friends from a larger church liked it and ended up sharing with it. And when one of my blog posts is read by literally 20 people, um, this particular post ended up being read by 5,000. Um, so more, right? Um, <laughs> And, and what ended up happening that I found out later, I went back and read it this week in preparation for this message. I was like, man, I, I, really, I really believe in what I said in that post. What really broke my heart is I found out later that that post was used to cause dissension in other churches. Um, and I ended up really, I, you guys know me, that was not my heart on it at all. I honestly wrote it for the 20 people that usually read, um, you know, to kind of exp- work through my own feelings on it. And I found out that the, the blog post ended up being taken to the elders meetings in some churches and causing conflict and debate and dissension. And that's what was happening in the early church. And it can happen very easily. It can happen on the issue of politics can happen over issues of music in some churches. It can happen, I've heard it happen even in uh, things like decorating. It can happen over simple, de- uh, simple disagreements. And all of a sudden, a church that was cruising along and doing well, all of a sudden, the church finds itself in conflict. And I'm telling you, we're so blessed because you guys are so awesome, but churches all over the country have faced this during the pandemic on issues of race and politics and mask mandates, and vaccines, and all of this stuff. And a lot of churches have become divided, and people are going to find whatever they can to kind of prove their point that they are right and everybody else is wrong. And we need to approach these things with grace. You know what the grace solution is? Here's what Paul would say the grace solution is. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God, and Christ resurrected is the power of God. 
So while we might have super strong opinions on any variety of subjects, we understand Christ crucified and Christ resurrected is the most important, life-changing, world-changing message that we can have. So we don't want to get distracted by things like, I mean, not that it's not important, but mask mandates or color of carpet or even work. We don't want to get distracted by these things because we understand the most important thing is Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. And so the, pri- the priority is not convincing you that I'm right, although I believe that I am, right? And we could have a long discussion, but the priority is not convincing you that I'm right. The priority is convincing you that Jesus is alive. And that, that is a very, those are two very different things that our church culture is not understanding right now in the United States. We are desperate to prove that we're right. We are desperate to prove that we're right. And the priority is not, I'm right. The priority is that Christ was crucified for your sins and he is alive. That's the priority. That we would be connected to him. That we would receive his grace and his power to live a different life. Issue number two, sexual sin. It's actually reported, Paul writes, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that the pagans do not even tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. All God's people said, you, right? (laughs) And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who had been doing this? For my part, though, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. Paul, I don't need to be involved. I, I know, right? This is wrong. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit, look at the motivation here though. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So the issue here obviously is that asexual sin had found its way into the church and the Corinthian church was not addressing it. Yes, they believed all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but there is a difference between a person who has sinned, sees their sin, and sees the need to repent of it and receive forgiveness and grace. There's a difference between that and a person who just refuses to do that. And even beyond that, a a person who wants to be celebrated for their sin. And in this church, there was a pride that set in that said, look at how we handle this guy's sin. We're so graceful. We're so loving. We're so kind. We're so tolerant. Look at how tolerant we are. That any, everybody's welcome in that way. We're, we're just so tolerant. We are a church that believes you can live however you want to live, and it's okay with God. And I've told you, I know a lot of churches that are afraid of grace for this very reason, that they're afraid if they teach grace and they teach Christ crucified, they are afraid that it's going to be in their church sinapalooza, right? And there's going to be a massive sin party and people are just going to lose their minds. And that just misunderstands grace, guys. Grace properly understood does not rebel against obedience. Grace properly understood leans into obedience. It leans into submission. It leans into the sacrifice of my will and desire for the the will and desire of Jesus. Grace misunderstood and mistaught 
certainly does teach that, that grace is a license to sin. But I would articulate that that is a gross misunderstanding of, our, of grace, of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who forgives us of our sin, Christ crucified, but resurrected so that we can overcome it. And you and I need both. I desperately need to be forgiven of my sin, and you do too. But man, I, I don't want to just be forgiven, and you probably don't either. I need power from on high so that I can overcome. So what is the grace solution? When a person has committed their life to Jesus, and that's an important caveat here, when a person has committed their life to Jesus, the grace solution when it comes to sin is accountability, conversation, eventual discipline. These are not counter-grace. If you've ever raised kids or grandkids, you know this is not counter-grace. You discipline your kids. Why? Because you love them. You love them and you want better for them and you don't want them to live this way. And so grace and discipline are absolutely connected in the life of the church. And anyone, like I said, with grandkids or, or kids understands that grace implores and demands us to hold our children accountable. Paul will go on to say that unrepentant sin, he said that categorized your former life, but God washed you, he sanctified you, and he justified you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of God's spirit so that you can overcome. Right? He washed over our sins, not just to forgive us, but to give us new life. All right, issue number three. People in the church are publicly fighting with one another. All right? So here's what Paul says in, in chapter 6. I told you there's a lot of, this church was a train wreck, right? If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Very interesting phrase. We're not even getting into it. I just find it fascinating. Did you, that we're going to judge the world? I don't really understand what that means in, in the last days. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases. Do you not know that we will judge angels? What? Uh, yeah, different sermon, different time, but how much, how much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The problem is simple. Followers of Jesus in this church were unable to work out their common, trivial matters with one another, and they were taking one another to court. And you can see at the end of the text here, you can see Paul's concern. This in front of unbelievers. He said, so people are coming to church. They're being invited by their friends. And they're coming in here. And you can, when you walk into a church full of tension, you can just feel it the minute you walk in. And you're like, what is this feeling? What is going on here? Oh, Bill is suing Brian. Right? And everybody's kind of taking sides. And that's what's going on. And Paul was such a Jesus guy and such a gospel guy and such a grace guy and a mission guy that this is his primary concern. That the good news of Jesus would be compromised by this trivial disagreement. But yet a, a disagreement that got kind of nasty enough that it needed to go to court. And here's Paul's point. Jesus-loving, grace-filled people should be able to work things out. Now, honestly, in all my years of serving at this point in the church, I have seen this happen 
uh, on only a couple of occasions where a member of the church has sued another member of the church. And spoiler alert, it does get messy, all right? So, um, but I've only seen it once or twice uh, where one believer has taken another believer to court. You know where I, see it, where I see it happen all of the time? Where one believer takes another believer to the court of public opinion. I've seen it happen all the time. Where a fight breaks out on Facebook or other social media platforms, and one Christian points, I think this is the best way to handle things, and another Christian, I, I think this is the way to handle it, and all of a sudden it gets ugly, and there's name-calling, and there's unfriending, and all of a sudden it doesn't look any different than those outside of Christ, how they disagree. And here's Paul's point. It should look different. It should. It should look different because of grace. So what is the grace solution? Paul will say, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Be quick to work things out. Get help if you need it. It's not that we never disagree in this room. I could cause massive disagreement just this morning by saying, you know, Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player of all time. Maybe not in Illinois. That wouldn't be as controversial there. But, you know, I, I could cause great controversy right now with Pepsi's better than Coke. Right? You know, how dare you? Right? You know, and... So we disagree. That's okay. But disagreement looks different because of grace. Disagreement looks different because of grace. Issue number four, food sacrifice to idols. So we talked about this kind of issue before, before we get to the scripture. And basically what was happening is Corinth was a significant sized city. There were a lot of worship of, of a lot of different gods. And what would happen is, is that somebody would make a sacrifice to some other god and then they'd be done with that kind of act of worship, and they would sell the meat to the market where you did your grocery shopping. All right? And, and uh, then it would just be sold as regular meat uh, in the marketplace. And there was a great debate that happened amongst Christians of when you're kind of strolling through Kroger, and you see the meat sacrifice to idol section, 50% off, manager special, should you buy that meat as a Christian? Right? This was, this was the, the big debate. And, and some said, yeah, I, I'm going to buy it. I'm not worshiping that God. It's 50% off. Of course I'm buying it. It's manager special. And others would say, I'm not giving a dime of my money to that pagan God. And this became very much an, a, an issue of contention. Is should a Christian buy food sacrificed to an idol? And here's what Paul writes. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many little g gods and many little l lords, yet for us there is but one capital G God, the Father from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one capital L Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live Verse 7 of chapter 8. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. That's not just a stake to them. And instead, their conscience is weak. Because their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are uh, no worse if we, if we do not eat and no better if we do. So you can kind of get a window into how Paul feels about this issue. Where if you can get a deal on steak, get a deal on steak. 
Have your friends over, barbecue, indulge, enjoy, you know, all of that, that eating meat is okay, but he will go on in the text to describe it as a disputable matter, a matter of opinion, a matter of conscience. And we don't have an exact correlation in our culture, but I think there are some things that we have navigated recently as a culture that have the potential to divide Christians that are a matter of conscience. Pandemic response, vaccines and masks, the role of government in our world. Should government be, uh, be bigger or smaller? Media consumption. Should a Christian have a Disney or Netflix subscription? And I read a lot of stuff that falls on both sides of this. And the reason I read a lot of stuff that falls on both sides of this is this. It's disputable. It's a matter of opinion. And can I tell you something? We are quickly losing this category in our culture. This is called the category that my parents used to call this, let's agree to disagree. Eh, Not, no, no. Our culture does not have this category anymore. No, let me ruin your reputation, cancel you, forget about you, punish you because we disagree. But I'm telling you, it's a really powerful category to have of that man. We disagree on this issue, and it's disputable. It's a matter of opinion. That's okay. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The great solution is first, don't make your brother stumble. Because Christ died for that brother. So practice your freedom. You have freedom in these disputable matters. Practice your freedom with sensitivity. If your brother doesn't eat meat, don't invite him over for a steak dinner. If he doesn't like Netflix, don't invite him over for movie night. If he has a certain political view, don't bring him over and bombard him with Tucker Carlson or Anderson Cooper. Right? Practice your freedom with sensitivity. But second of all, be willing to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel. Paul says in another text, he says, I am willing to become all things to all men that by any reasonable links that I can reach some, that I am willing to lay down my rights for your salvation, understanding that there are some things that are disputable and there are some things that are not. Jesus is king. Jesus is good. Jesus is the weight of salvation. That's the way. So I understand that these are the things that are not disputable. They are the most important. And I am willing to give up my rights to maintain relationship so that I can influence you for Christ. Two more. Lord's Supper. Two more is correct. All right. So, in the following, is it two more or is it a lot more? No, it's two more. All right. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. All right. This is after 11 chapters of all the divisions. I have no trouble believing this. All right? Know that there are to be differences among you to show that you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead and share your own private suppers. As a result, one person goes hungry and another person gets drunk. So it's pretty simple what's happening. The early church would share this meal together. You'd come to church, like a fellowship meal every Sunday. The church used to share a full meal together, and then as a part of that meal, they'd have the Lord's Supper. 
And so this was a long kind of standing tradition in the early church. And what was happening is the early church was either overindulging together or just doing private parties and, and eating up all of the food. And there was little left for those that had less. And it was creating tension, as you might imagine. If it's like, yeah, you know, you, you all come to church and it's like, yeah, sorry, we had a group come in and eat all the food. You might want, that's a bummer one week. Week 10, it's annoying, to be honest, right? Uh, week 20, it's, we got a problem, right? Week 30, we're going to war. You're eating all my food, right? So it was creating tension, inequity, and unfairness. And the great solution is this. Jesus gave his body and blood for the church. So don't despise it. When you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you proclaim his death until he comes. So sacrificially share with one, another, with one another when you celebrate how Jesus sacrificed his life for you, right? It, it makes absolutely no sense that you would refuse to sacrifice and you would consume all the food while you are practicing this moment in church that celebrates and remembers the sacrifice of Jesus. In short, here's what Paul says. Be generous. Be generous. A grace-centered person celebrates the greatest moment of generosity ever. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's the, it's the basis of our faith. It's the basis of everything we do. So, man, he says, grace can overcome this, but you've got to learn to be generous. Last one, spiritual gifts. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So the last issue Paul wants to tackle is the issue of spiritual gifts. There was a ton of debate in the early church because it was kind of more of a caste system, more of an honor system. There was a lot of debate about which gifts were the most important and which gifts were the least important and how they should be prioritized. And so this caused some people to be insistent that their gift was the most important gift and it should be celebrated the most. And it caused others to say, man, my gift isn't important at all, and so I'm just not going to use it at all. And neither of these things are good things. And neither of these are godly things. He'll actually wrap up this whole section uh, in chapter 12. He wraps it up by saying, my prayer for you, Corinthian church, is that you would eagerly desire the greatest gift, the greater gift. So, well, their ears would perk up. What is the greater gift? We've been arguing about this. Which gift is the top and which gift is the bottom? Which should be celebrated? Which should be prioritized? What is the greater gift? And Paul said, it's the gift we all have, the gift of love. Stop making yourself more important and others less important. Eagerly desire the greater gift. And he'll go on to say, love is patient. Love is kind. The whole love chapter, it's based in this. Same, eagerly desire the greater gift. And that's the great solution is that Jesus in his grace has gifted you for a reason, and that's amazing. Lean into that because he has a plan and purpose for your life, but also Jesus has gifted them, the person you see in this room, for a reason and, a pur and, and, for a reason and a purpose. So never, ever exalt your gift. Never, ever denigrate their gift. Just love. Love one another. So it has been an interesting couple years to be a church, I think. Wouldn't you agree? I think that almost everyone agrees that church has shifted and changed in some significant ways. And I want to end by starting the question that I asked at the very beginning, put it on the screen for you. What is the kind of church that thrives now and in the future? In the 1950s, churches that thrived 
were churches that preached shared values. We were less divided then, honestly, and so people came to church and they would hear a message that almost everybody in the room agreed with, and then they would go out and they would see media and print and newspaper also articulate those core views. And so churches that really thrived in the 1950s, they were up here just kind of preaching shared values. That this is something we all kind of agree on. Culture agreed, or at least said they agreed. Newspaper agreed. Everybody just kind of agreed. These are our nation's shared values. And the churches that thrived operated in that, in that way. In the 1980s, churches that thrived were those that sought to be super contemporary. It was the age of the megachurch and high production value, lights, worship, world-renowned teaching. It was just kind of almost like an entertainment-style venue in the 1980s, and the churches that thrived went kind of super contemporary. In the 2000s, the churches that thrived were churches that were engaged in social outreach. And so, you know, serving their local community, trying to make a difference, all, all of that stuff, and all of those things, none of these things are, are totally wrong or off track, and, and they're all good, but I think that over the next season, churches that thrive are going to be churches that talk about, celebrate, and demonstrate grace. I'm telling you, our culture is so hungry for it, there are not examples of it for them in this culture, examples of grace. We have so moved away from a grace position as a nation. And we have this message in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this message of grace. And so the church can demonstrate it. We can demonstrate what it means to forgive and what it means to be in relationship with people that you maybe disagree with but love anyway. We, we can show self-sacrifice and humility and care, and people moving forward will be so drawn to it because I'm telling you, there's been no time in my adult lifetime that I remember the church and the message of the church being so different than the message of culture. The message of culture is prove that you're right. Christianity is humble yourself. The message of, of, of culture is Man, go, go to the mat on every issue. The message of Christianity is self-sacrifice. The message of culture is hold a grudge. The message of grace is forgive. And I've never, I never remember a time in my adult life where it is so different. The approaches are so different where the message of culture is cancel. The message of Christianity is forgive and embrace. It's so different and it's so powerful. And we have this message that our culture desperately needs and they can see it in us as long as we stay grace-centered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. As we get ready to receive communion right now, um, I pray that whatever's gone on this week, that we would um, come back into a grace position. Um, I love that our church does this every week uh, because it's a reminder to us of what the grace position looks like. God, it looks like your son Jesus on a cross, humble, self-sacrificing, giving himself up for the salvation of the world. And may we have some of that as we move forward. May we show people what grace looks like, what humility looks like, what forgiveness looks like. May we demonstrate to people the truth of your gospel of grace. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together, two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some juice representing Jesus' blood. The other has um, 
a, a cracker representing his body. And this is an opportunity for us to just reflect on grace, reflect on Jesus, and ask him to help us to live out this model in our communities, to show people what grace really looks like. So our servers are going to pass it out. You can just kind of reflect for a few minutes, and then I'll come back up, and we'll receive it together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you again for your grace. Uh, As we leave this place, may we embrace it, internalize it, celebrate it, and demonstrate it to the people around us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, like I said, we're going to start a new series next week called This is the Faith. And kind of week one is going to be one of the unique things about Christianity is that it offers contentment and joy based in unchanging circumstances. And so it's so different than so many other religions and, and, and certainly what our culture offers is contentment and joy based in unchanging uh, circumstances. So um, uh, I'm excited to delve into that with you next Sunday. So go ahead and stand up and uh, we're gonna close with one last song.